and welcome to The Moore Show. I'm your host, Kevin Moore, and for the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'll be joined with Professor Jane Plant, who will discuss her research into cancer cures. But first of all, I'm joined with Philip Mantle, UFO author and editor of the new UFO Matrix magazine. Now, this magazine brings together an international list of contributors to provide you with the latest UFO sightings reports, discussions, debates, theories, news, and much, much more. So without further ado, Philip, welcome to the show. Good evening. So, Philip, um, how did the UFO Matrix magazine come about? Well, I mean, the way UFO Matrix came about is is quite, you know, by chance, to to be perfectly honest. Um, I've got a colleague in in Italy who for several years has run a number of highly successful publications. One is about UFOs, another is about uh, archaeology, Uh, and I've known him for a long time. Uh, And periodically he will send me a copy of of his magazines, bearing in mind I I can't read Italian, he just sends me them for the sake of it. Uh, Last year he he sent me a couple and he just said, as a a, by the way, do you know anybody who might be interested in the, the English translation rights. I didn't, but uh, I'd just signed uh, a deal to do a few books with a, uh, a publishing company in the UK called Healings of Atlantis. Got to know their boss. So I asked him if he might be interested. So he said, well, I'll, I'll have a look. You know, we didn't commit himself. So he looked at these publications. I put him in touch with my friend in Italy who, you know, reads and writes, speaks good English. And, and, and it started there. And, um, you know, Amounts of money were discussed, and basically our publisher, a chap named Dave, Dave Franklin, said, well, it, it's, you know, for the amount of money we would pay our t- Italian friends, we might as well pay you. Uh, would you be interested in, in starting from scratch uh, our own uh, magazine? That wasn't just me, that was myself and my colleague Malcolm Robinson, uh, who also has books published with the same uh, company. So we, you know, after a long and lengthy discussion and a lot of planning, uh, UFO Matrix quite literally hit the high street on, on the 30th of July uh, in all the WH Smith stores and a whole host of other independent uh, outlets. And uh, so, it, so, you know, it really did start quite, quite by chance. It wasn't planned as such to begin with, but once we sort of formulated the idea, then the planning came, came in, into being. And, uh, you know, we're very pleased with the, with the, with the outcome. So the magazine's available from uh, WH Smith's, all good uh, outlets and news agents as well. Um, is this a monthly magazine or bi-monthly? UFO Matrix is a bi-monthly publication. Uh, it's extremely high gloss, you know, a very, very polished finish. It's 100 pages, availing all WH Smith's. If they haven't got it, it means that it's in the back room or they've sold out. Um, another independent, two independent outlets have taken it, so you may find it in your local newsagent or even your local co-op or your spa. Can't guarantee it will be in all of those, but it's certainly in a lot of them. It's in something like over 3,500 different outlets around the UK. And, of course, you, if failing that, you can always order it online. Uh, and we've also managed to, um, by the end of the month, get it in a, a few different countries overseas. It will be in Barnes & Noble in Borders in the United States, uh, Canada, as well, uh, Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, I believe Sweden as well, and um, later in the year I believe there's, there's more countries coming on board, so we're extremely pleased, but um, there's no point having it in the shops unless people buy it, of course. Of course. Uh, so hopefully 
you know, that will be the case. People will like what we've got, and so far all the feedback has been extremely positive, and they'll take this opportunity and acquire their own copies. Yes, because I was going to ask you that. How's the feedback in this country been received so far? So it's all been very good. It's all been very good. I mean, we've had some cr- constructive comments because we've got one or two little things slightly wrong. They're, you know, they're only teething troubles, nothing major. Uh, for example, we forgot to credit the guy who did our cover design first time for us, a gentleman by the name of David Sankey, excellent artist, uh, and we have apologised to David, but he hadn't noticed himself anyway. Um, so it's little things like that, but in, in, in broad terms, literally, not just in the UK, we've sent review copies out to a, a few places, uh, and they're, they're stunned with it. You know, it, it took everyone by surprise, to be, to be perfectly honest. I mean, no disrespect to other UFO publications that have gone before, because some of them have been quite excellent. Um, but this is something completely different, and uh, it, it's extremely uh, high calibre, highly polished, and uh, we're, we're, you know, we're very pre- pleased with it and, and rightly proud of our, of our accomplishments. But so far, so good. Well, congratulations from the Moore Show. And also, uh, I, I understand you're the main sponsors for the Weird Ten conference held in Warminster. That's now, right, I- yes. I mean, we, we, you know, we, I've organised conferences, both large and small myself, as is my colleague Malcolm Robinson. Uh, and we were looking at the possibility of perhaps organising a conference this year. And uh, I, I know the people at, at, at the, the Weird Conference, and we thought, well, we're going to be pretty busy getting the magazine off the ground and launching it. Perhaps another idea might be, rather than organise one ourselves, is to sponsor one. Uh, and the main one, as far as we were concerned, anywhere in the country, was the Weird 10 event down in Warminster. Um, of course, Warminster is synonymous with, with UFOs in the UK. It was a hot spot for, for flying saucer sightings throughout the 60s and 70s. The conference started last year, so we thought we'd put our weight behind it. Uh, and I'll, I'll be speaking at it as well, as, as a whole host of other speakers from up and down the country. And, and the good thing about the conference, although the conference is going to be you know, a great weekend, it's a great spot. Warminster is very central for Stonehenge, Crop Circles, Longleat House, and a whole host of other attractions nearby so you, you know you can make a, a few days of it and not just go for the conference as well so again if anybody you know wants to come along we'll all be there you can pick up copies of ufo matrix there as well of course uh, and, and uh, we're looking forward to it. it's going to be a fantastic weekend and, and of course that will take place over the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of august okay well we'll pull a link on our website for that as well as the magazine link as well and uh, any big plans for the next couple of issues of the ufo matrix uh, yes i mean i mean it's, it's developing as we speak so you know this is not chiseled in tablets of stone but issue two is, is pretty much finished now and it just needs to go to our, our designer but um one of the main things in issue two we're going to concentrate on um alien abductions uh, and, you know, we put a banner on the front of, the, of, of the, uh, the next cover, Alien Abductions, Fact or Fantasy, because there are some people who claim that they're not what they're supposed to be. So, you know, we're going to debate the subject. There's different articles in there. Also, my colleague, um, Malcolm Robinson, uh, I don't know if people are aware of this, but he, he researched um, an abduction case in Scotland from a few years back now, in the 1990s, and it took place on the A70 in Scotland. And Malcolm, uh, we are pleased to announce, has signed a movie deal. And A70 will be a cinema release probably the end of next year. And we've interviewed the producer, a lady by the name of Dion Rose, so we get the first exclusive about this particular movie, why she chose that case, and so on. 
uh, and some of the main actors, for example, from the Lord of the Rings, Rings trilogy, have signed up to be uh, to be part of it. So, you know, an exciting venture, uh, and we wish Malcolm well. But a whole host of things in there, quite literally from around the world. Uh, of course, issue three that will be out uh, by the end of the year, and that will be a Rendlesham special. Probably Britain's most famous UFO events happened in Rendlesham Forest in late December 1980. This year, of course, sees, sees the 30th anniversary. So again, we're going to have a, um, you know, a, a wide range of different articles by different researchers and some of the people who were involved directly, uh, one of whom is, is Sergeant John Burrows, and I will be interviewing John on the telephone um, next Saturday. And so we've got a, you know, a wide variety of information all about Rendlesham. That will be the, our, our, our issue number three. And um, I'll be working on that you know, in, in, uh, in, in due course. It won't be long. Initial three will be around and upon us. And what's the website address for the UFO Matrix magazine? It's just uh, www.healingsofatlantis.com. Well, Philip, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, and uh, we'll look, to, look forward to seeing everybody down at Weird 10, and I hope everybody likes UFO Matrix magazine. Thank you very much. Okay, next on the show we have Professor Jane Plant. Now, Jane has been an extremely active member of the professional community, with a large number of posts during her career, ranging from engineering institutions, advisory panels, royal commissions and universities across the world. Jane is a leading geochemist who has made major contributions to earth and environmental science. Over 14 years ago, Jane was diagnosed with terminal cancer, but due to her making fundamental changes in her diet, she was able to self-cure and went on to write over eight books based on curing cancer. Jane, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Now, Jane, what's your latest book? It's one called Beating Stress, Anxiety and Depression, which is aimed at helping um, people with mood disorders, of which there are growing numbers, especially in the UK. I mean, how did you sort of get into the, these alternative therapies? <laughs> well, my day job is in a subject called geochemistry, and I'm a professor at Imperial College. But about, um, oh, over 20 years ago now, I was at a conference in Canada, and I discovered I had breast cancer. And it came back four times. And in the end, I was given two months to live, quotes, if we are lucky. And the only way out, really, was to use my own science. And uh, that's what I did, and I'm still here today. Okay, so it was basically through a, a cancer scan, and how long ago was that now? Well, it's 16 years this year since I had breast cancer, secondaries. Um, and at the time, you know, I was basically written off. But I essentially used my science to work out how to get over that. And, and has the cancer ever come back? Um, it's been in remission since then. I never used the word cured. Um, but it's been in remission now for 16 years. For 16 years, okay. And with your science background then, I mean, what, just, just go over your sort of science background. What, what was your main sort of main forte then? It, it was earth, well, I did, ge I, did, uh, I did geology and chemistry at Liverpool University and a PhD at Leicester University. And um, I was supposed to be using my geochemistry to find ore deposits like uranium or gold ore deposits. But I became increasingly interested in the relationship between chemicals in the environment and human health. Initially, the health of agricultural animals and then human health, where people were living 
on subsistence agriculture and you could see a clear relationship between the chemistry of the soils and waters where they were living because they were living so close to the soil and their health. Okay, now, so let's just go over cancer to begin with. I mean, yeah. in, in your view, I mean, what, what is cancer? Well, we, the name cancer is very scary. Um, it makes people feel that some horrible alien crab-like creature has got their body. Um, and it comes originally from Hippocrates' description of what he saw when somebody died after having cancer for a long time. This rather um, distorted look to parts of the body affected. But in fact, it's just when your own cells have got a few of their messages wrong, a few of the genes have have been knocked out. So they're um, they've gone wrong. I, I often liken it to a knitting pattern where somebody's got a few errors in the knitting pattern, so they start sending out the wrong chemicals. Okay. So when, when you had your, um, your cancer, I mean, how, how ill were you from the sort of side effects of the cancer treatments? Um, I was very ill. Um, the first time I had it, I had a mastectomy, and that was in 1987. And then I was told I just had one tumour and no lymph nodes affected so I wouldn't have it back again so go away and just forget it and enjoy my life but of course five years later it came back and it came back four times and um, in the end I had um, 35 radiotherapy treatments and um, I had my ovaries irradiated to induce the menopause and I had um, um, 12 chemotherapy treatments and, it, it, I mean, there's no getting away from it. It is unpleasant. But um, I think you can help yourself a lot um, by following my diet. Lots of people um, are amazed, or their doctors and nurses are amazed, by how well they cope if they're on my sort of diet. Yeah, now, with your diet, I mean, um, where, where was the background to the diet? I mean, where, where did the ideas for the, for the diet change come from? Well, initially, it was kind of accidental because I've worked in China in the past. They have a big area where there is no, um, almost no um, selenium, a trace element called selenium and another called iodine in their soils, and it causes them a big problem with health, causes them heart disease and problems like that. So the Chinese heard of my predicament and sent me some... um, appalling-looking herbal suppositories that looked like firework rockets. And I turned to my husband, who's also worked in China separately from me, um, and said, my goodness, if this is what the Chinese use to treat breast cancer, no wonder they don't have it. Now, I was aware they didn't have breast cancer because they'd given me this wonderful silk-bound atlas of um, the incidence of various types of cancer in China, and it showed that the basic rate of breast cancer was 1 in 100,000 instead of um, one, 1 in 10, as it was yeah. here. And the data I knew were firm because they'd, it had been done under the auspices of, Professor, of Premier Chuen Lai when he was dying of bladder cancer. Okay. He realized how little was known about some aspects of the disease, and he had the wit to involve American observers. So these data showing one in 100,000 women instead of one in 10 suddenly hit me. I knew them, but I had forgotten them. And so I thought, well, what do I do? So I decided to change to a diet uh, like that of the rural Chinese. Now, with the Chinese diet, I mean, what's so different compared to the Western sort of diet? I mean, what, what are we looking at? 
Well, a lot of research was done on this in the 1980s by a team from Oxford, Cornell in the States, and Beijing in, in China. And um, they documented it, and they documented a lot of uh, biomarkers in blood, like cholesterol levels, and compared it with a typical American diet. Amazingly, the Chinese diet had more calories in it, but it was much more natural, and it had far more carbohydrates, far less fat, and the fat was healthy fat, things from vegetables, nuts, seeds, and fish. And it had about the same amount of alcohol, interestingly, and about the same amount of protein, but the protein composition was completely different. In the case of the Americans, it was about uh, 10% animal protein and 1% vegetable protein. In China, it was completely different, 10% vegetable protein and 1% animal protein. So some, basically a much healthier, more vegetable-based yeah. diet in um, China, much more raw, less refined food, that sort of thing. Now, now you mentioned in your book as well that, um, that the use of uh, dairy products. Now, yes. Um, you're saying in your book to eliminate the dairy products um, had this had the effect on with yourself that it that it eliminated yes. the cancer in essence. Yes, um, basically I was already on a very healthy diet, but I was having two organic low fat yogurts every day. Now, um, one of the revelations my husband and I had when we were brainstorming why don't the Chinese get this is was at the time they didn't have a dairy industry. So the thing I gave up was the low fat dairy yogurts, and to my amazement, the cancer disappeared. And, um, of course, after that, I wanted to know, well, why did it disappear? And, um, of course, you find that um, dairy produce has got about 35 hormones in it and about 11 growth factors, which are directly implicated in promoting cancer. And so cutting that out is like cutting out a big source of your intake of things like estrogen and um, substances like IGF-1, which are strongly implicated in promoting not only breast cancer, but also ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, and um, some types of colorectal cancer. Okay. So, so eliminating dairy products and reducing exposure to, um, I suppose, hormone-changing chemicals yeah. um, is what sort of uh, is what sort of works for you and works for other people that uh, have come across your books. Yes, I get um, emails every every day from people saying thank you. Some say thank you, thank you, thank you. The latest one was from a lady in Nottingham whose daughter bought had to see me just before Christmas and she was looking quite ill and she got a lot of breast cancer secondaries in her lungs with a very high tumour marker in her blood and to be honest I didn't give her much hope but she's followed it rigorously and on Wednesday this week I got an email from her daughter which ended thank you thank you thank you because her mother's lungs are now clear um, she, she was having to have fluid drained off them. That's not happening anymore. And her blood marker is down in the normal range. So she was absolutely delighted, of course. I mean, what do senior doctors, especially the sceptical ones, think about your book? I mean, um, have, have, are they now working with you a bit more or recommending you? I mean, It's very patchy. I mean, um, some American doctors have actually pinched my ideas and published them in mainstream journals. And... Um, I wrote and said, well, I, I thought it was a bit rough that
that they'd come over here, spent two days talking to me, and not even uh, acknowledged me in their um, acknowledgement. So that's one extreme. And the other is just to... Um, just to deny that there's anything in it and just to poo-poo it. Um, The middle course is some um, GPs now are giving my books away as part of a follow-up pack if their patients have had breast cancer or prostate cancer. Okay. Now, does your treatments work with other forms of cancer? The the thing I have had no success with is smoking-related cancers. It just doesn't seem to touch it at all. And I can only think that the change induced by tobacco is so fundamental that diet isn't going to help much. But it has helped a lot with um, lymphomas. Yeah. Um, certainly with colorectal cancer, enormous success. Um, with um, quite a lot of ovarian cancer patients I've seen. Uh, certainly really well with prostate cancer. If you look on my website, you'll see a number of success stories there. And, uh, and of course, with breast cancer and esophageal cancer, I should mention. Okay. Now, um, so what advice would you give to someone listening to the show today? I mean, if they have a, a breast cancer or, or, or concern about breast cancer, I mean, what, what action should they take immediately concerning their diets? Well, the first thing is to give up dairy. Um, and and change to some other sort of um, vegetable milk, and I don't care whether that's soy milk, rice milk, oat milk, pea milk, any of those vegetable milks. Um, But there are, um, I think I've got 10 food factors in the book that they need to pay attention to, and there are also lifestyle factors. I mean, we're exposed all the time to chemicals that can actually mimic the effects of oestrogen on the body. Okay, and what would these chemicals be? Well, things like, um, there's some chemicals called phthalates, um, which are very estrogenic, and they can be in anything from um, plastics, especially soft plastics, to cosmetics, to some shower gels. Um, So you really need to know how to check um, that your product hasn't got these in. I've put a lot in in, <clears throat> in the book, Your Life in Your Hands, and yeah. the prostate book, about how to avoid harmful substances. Pet, some pesticides also um, are quite um, estrogenic. It may not be the main ingredient, but somewhere in the formulation, there may be something that acts like estrogen. What books of your books would you recommend as uh, pre- preventative sort of uh, cures for um, dietary changes? I mean, what, what's the sort of... Well, I think... Um, for women, your life in your hands um, and make sure you get the latest edition because sometimes they get fobbed off with old editions. The latest edition is August 2007 and it deals with breast cancer and ovarian cancer but all the information is relevant to all the other cancers I mentioned. Okay. Um, in the case of men, I would get the one on prostate cancer. Okay. Again, published August 2007. So are we saying then that... Um, is it the correct balance of oils in the diets uh, to, to help the body get back to its, its, its normal non-dairy state? I mean, what, what, what are we saying? Well, I, <clears throat> I think there are various aspects to the diet. One is, is to get rid of all the toxins from the body. And um, a lot of these are very fat-soluble. They were designed to be fat-soluble pesticides and these sorts of things. I'm not sure why they were designed to be fat-soluble, but they are. So getting a good fat profile in your diet is important. So, um, for example, I won't eat oily fish um, because 
um, the way the food web works and these chemicals bioaccumulate up the food chain, um, oily fish can end up with quite a lot in in them, as can dairy, especially full-fat dairy. So the um, best way of, of clearing your body of those is to cut those sources out. You do need the things from um, fatty fish. So I take ultra-pure cod liver oil, which has had these chemicals taken out of it for my fish oil fats. Yeah. And then I have things like linseeds. I eat lots of seeds and nuts, which contain good oils in them. More, more natural oils, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, okay. I mean, the, the two types of fat to really try and avoid are saturated fat, which is in animal produce like cheese and butter and full-fat cream, uh, full-fat yogurts, those sorts of, of fats, and on bacon or fat red meat or, or fatty chicken. Um, the other is trans fats, where somebody's manufactured fat from vegetable oils because they are also... Uh, quite toxic okay. uh, to the body. When we think about it, I mean, why is it more wildlife, you know, becoming suffering cancer? I mean, I mean, what are we doing that's wrong? What, what are we not going back to basics? Is that what it is? Well, wildlife is quite affected by some of the chemicals out there. I mean, um, for example, our, <clears throat> our hormone system evolved about six hundred million years ago, amazingly. And um, it's the same, very similar, the same hormone system in things like frogs and um, fish and rats. And, but the hormones may be used slightly differently. So, for example, if you get a lot of um, hermaphrodite frogs, as you have had in the States, in part of America, that's been traced by very famous people like Thea Colborn, Professor Thea Colborn, to, to um, these so-called hormone-disrupting chemicals in the environment. Let's just go back to the Chinese way of doing it then. I mean, in their cookbooks, do they ever mention anything about dairy products? I mean, no, the old ones didn't. And the old word for um, dairy in China um, indicated it was a liquid from a, a, an animal's udder and um, usually elicited a sort of yuck response. But, of course, the marketeers have got there and changed the name and marketed it. And now I have Chinese colleagues trying to persuade me I need dairy for my bones. And, of course, their breast and prostate cancer rates have started to rise the way the Japanese ones did after the Second World War when they, their diet started to become Americanized. Right, so all the abbots out there that say, you know, drink milk, have strong bones, you'd be sort of dead against that principle? Well, it's just nonsense, because if you look at the data on osteoporosis, the countries that have the highest osteoporosis have the highest dairy and animal protein intake. It's countries like Nigeria and China that have incredibly low osteoporosis in the past. And, and the thing I always say when somebody tells me this, I always say, well, Elephants and hippopotamuses are vegan, and they have incredibly strong bones. They yeah. don't have dairy, do they? Well, that's right, that's right. So it's just marketing propaganda, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. And unfortunately, lots of doctors and nurses um, are, are persuaded of this, too. Right. So how would you, what would you say to people then out there that have sort of uh, recovered from cancer um, and also are going to be thinking about using your, your dietary um, ideas? How do they go on to prevent reoccurrences? Well, in my book called The Plant Programme, which is a little cookbook, 
And there are two diets. There's one for people with active cancer, and there's another one that I call the prevention diet. And it's, you know, when, when people have active cancer, the diet says have very, very little animal produce. But, of course, when they're getting better or when they just want to prevent it, they do want to have a bit more animal produce, and so the prevention diet helps them do that. So let's just look at the foods here just just right now quickly. We need a fibre intake. Yeah, you need a high fibre intake. That was shown in the 1950s to prevent colorectal cancer, and that has just been confirmed by this huge EPIC study across Europe. So there's no doubt that high fibre... Um, prevents um, colorectal cancer and of course fiber is always vegetable material unrefined vegetable material there is no fiber whatsoever in animal produce right okay and then a a sort of regular fish intake Um, well as I said I have some white fish um, but I take my oily fish through cod liver oil that's been refined to take things like PCBs and other nasty hormone disrupting chemicals out of it. Is there any that you can recommend? I mean, what sort of cod liver oil? Well, the one I take, and I have no shares in no, it, is no. Seven Seas Cod Liver Oil. Okay. They do a very good ultra-pure version. Okay. And then, of course, the carbohydrates as well, the regular... Yeah. I mean, with carbohydrates, the important thing is to try to have unrefined ones um, because then, um, you know, they've got good anti-cancer chemicals in them and um, they burn at the right sort of rate for the human body. If you yeah. have refined ones, you get all these sugar surges, yeah. which are quite unhealthy. Okay. And um, going to the sort of herbal ideas as well, I mean, what, what would you think about the herbal therapies that are out there for cancer? I think herbal medicine is very powerful. Um, many chemotherapeutic agents and other cancer agents are from herbs. But um, I don't think herbal therapies on their own are going to tackle um, cancer. Um, I occasionally see people who've just had homeopathic treatment or herbal treatment for their cancer, yeah. and uh, usually they are in quite serious difficulty. So I strongly recommend conventional medicine combined with my diet as a way to tackle cancer. Is it ever too late? I mean, if we just, you know, look at some of the cases that have been out there recently in the, in the, in the media, I mean, is it ever too late to make a change? Or can, can cancer spread too severely sometimes for, for there to be any hope? Well, I'm asked this question a lot, and I always say, well, if it were me, I would give it a go. Because yeah. I was told I had two months to live. Um, but... Um, you know, with some people it won't work because it is too far gone and the cancer has damaged the person too much. But many, many people who've been told, you know, there's nothing more can be done, do get better. OK, Jane, we're going to take a break there, so stay tuned and we'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at themoreshow.co.uk Back in the woods one day I came across a vision that caught my eye was a lady standing right there beside a well and I heard a whisper what you wish for you can have then the vision went away I thought that I had lost her the girl I've been waiting for I can't believe I just saw her she is the finest thing I ever could imagine and I want her next to me cause I want more I want more 
show or a guest want to know more about the more show and upcoming guests then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk you're listening to the more show and here's your host kevin moore welcome back to the show i'm currently joined here with our guest professor jane plant Jane is author of over eight books based on uh, curing cancer. Now, Jane, uh, just going from where we last left off, how important is a uh, a fibre intake? Is a fibre intake, a high fibre intake, quite important? Yeah, you need a high fibre intake. That was shown in the 1950s to prevent colorectal cancer, and that has just been confirmed by this huge EPIC study across Europe. So there's no doubt that high fibre prevents um, colorectal cancer and of course fiber is always vegetable material unrefined vegetable material there is no fiber whatsoever in animal produce of course of course then a a sort of regular fish intake Um, well as I said I have some white fish um, but I take my oily fish through cod liver oil that's been refined to take things like PCBs and other nasty hormone disrupting chemicals out of it. And then, of course, the carbohydrates as well, the regular... Yeah, I mean, with carbohydrates, the important thing is to try to have unrefined ones um, because then, um, you know, they've got good anti-cancer chemicals in them and um, they burn at the right sort of rate for the human body. If you have refined ones, you get all these sugar surges, which are quite unhealthy. Okay, okay. And um, going to the sort of herbal ideas as well, I mean, what what would you think about the herbal therapies that are out there for cancer? I think herbal medicine is very powerful. Um, Many chemotherapeutic agents and other cancer agents are from herbs. But um, I don't think herbal therapies on their own are going to tackle... Um, cancer. Um, I occasionally see people who've just had homeopathic treatment or herbal treatment for their cancer and uh, usually they are in quite serious difficulty. 
So I strongly recommend conventional medicine combined with my diet as the way to tackle cancer. Now here's a, an age-old question for you. Vitamins, what do you think about them? Well, I won't take man <coughs> excuse me, man-made vitamins or minerals um, because the, the body, again, is not designed to take um, iron as iron, you know, sulfate or carbonate. It just doesn't know what to do with it. And people get side effects like constipation or, or what have you. So I take natural food supplements that I know cover me. Yeah. So, for example, I get my A and D from my cod liver oil. I get my B from taking brewer's yeast. I get my C because I have masses of fruit and vegetables and um, juices. I get my D from, as I said, from my cod liver oil. I get my E from all my nuts and my whole grain bread. And I get loads of other things like folic acid and magnesium from my fresh fruit and vegetables. So I really don't think if you pay attention to your diet that... Oh, the other thing I should mention is yeah. I try to have some sea vegetables. So kelp or um, brown wakame, you know, the way the Japanese and Chinese eat seaweed. Okay. Because it's got lots of things like calcium, magnesium, lithium, iodine. Um, and it's a very natural source. So I do have um, some sea vegetables every day. So with the vitamins, some people say that, you know, okay, you know, take the vitamins and, uh, you know, whatever the body doesn't want, you know, it, it'll, it'll get rid of. But you're saying that really you should, you know, stick with the, the more natural approach then rather than taking these high concentration vitamin intakes. Yeah, well, all the, all the, I mean, everything I say is based on peer-reviewed scientific research. And sure. all of that says if you take the natural form in the, in the, matrix it's meant to be in it is beneficial whereas if you take it as a pill it is not and the classic example of that is there was a, a, a trial in Finland which showed that um, beta carotenoid in vegetables was protective against lung cancer they repeated the um, the, the experiment using beta carotene in a pill and the outcome for the lung cancer patients was worse and most all the studies I'm aware of uh, where they've used a vitamin pill show similar results. We, t we say about the pills, but what, what can people rather do than resorting to pills? I mean, as, as, well, as, as well as, you know, taking all these supplements uh, to, um, to keep you going or to keep your, your vitamin intake up, uh, as what the supplements which you yourself has mentioned, I mean, what about just getting out there and having sort of lifestyle change as well? Well, that's very important. I mean, trying to spend some time in so-called green space is very important. It's very important for us emotionally as well as physically. I mean, we get vitamin D from sunlight, obviously not burnt to the extent of burning yourself or yeah. causing yourself skin changes. But just a walk in the sun in a green space is so good for the body. Yeah, and it's just good to get out sometimes as well, just get to get a... You know, out of the the mundane sort of sat in front of the TV and uh, you know. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Or the computer, you know. Or the this. computer, yeah, the, yeah, exactly, yeah. And exactly. we, you know, there's an awful lot of research that shows that we do need to network with other people, not just via a computer. We need the stimulus of interacting with other people, the eye contact, the yeah. social chat, and increasingly, we're not doing that. Yeah. Now, I mean, you, you've done work on depression, haven't you? You've done yes. books on depression. Yes. Um, um, didn't you yourself suffer from the cancer as well as the treatments? Yeah, I suffered from chronic anxiety. Yeah. Um, because what, I, what happened to me was they thought I was terminally ill. Yeah. 
So I was on a very high dose of a tranquilizer. And um, this is fine if you're going to die, but I didn't. And so getting off it was extremely difficult. And it took me eight years. And the withdrawal effects made me incredibly anxious. And it was very upsetting because I realized that the medics had no way of helping me. So I had to sit on the computer and work out for myself how to do it. And I I managed to do that. God, and this is what the books have... um been built up to all your experience of, of what you had to go through on your own in a sense yes uh, yeah. I mean if I hadn't had my science I would have been in a mess and that's why I've written the books to try and make the science I had access to accessible to other people and if anyone out there is suffering from depression as such, um, would you uh, still give the same advice just you know, to get out in, into green spaces, get out there and yes. meet people, yeah, yes. do things yeah, yes. yeah. It's very difficult initially because, of course, you feel so bad. You just want to lie in bed and pull a duvet over your head. You don't want to do that. But by making small changes, again, there are 10 lifestyle factors in that. And and diet, again, is crucially important in depression and anxiety. Is it really? Yeah. Very. I mean, it's quite interesting because I work with a very brilliant Russian biochemist and I send off people's urine samples to her. And um, she'll nearly always say, well, they've got some sort of infection, yeah. which means that the precursor of a neurotransmitter isn't being converted into the right neurotransmitter. It's being converted into a false one that's actually causing the mental problems. And all this, again, is in, is in your book. Uh, yes, uh, that's yeah. in Beating Stress, Anxiety and Depression. We'll put a link for that book on our, on our website as well. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, just finishing off the food part as well, because something's just popped in my head there. I mean, what what would you say about microwave food, sort of versus pressure cooker or steam food? I mean, because we've come such a society now, haven't we, yeah. of, of, of uh, things at a click of a button? Um, what's your views on on what that does to food, microwaving? Well, it, it's it's a bit more fundamental than that because the human brain evolved at a time when people going around in little groups, hunting and gathering and cooking their food overheat together as a social group. What people now do is use food like you go and recharge a a car and they go and pick up some um, what I call fossil food, which is um, pre-packaged, pre-cooked food, bung it into a microwave and eat it. And it's been dead for ages, that food, almost certainly. And it's very unhealthy. Apart from that, the plastics in the food if it's wrapped in, in soft plastics, you know, will affect will affect someone. Um, so it's not a healthy way to live and it's not a healthy way to eat. So one of my first food factors is, in the case of depression, is social eating, to try and make food a more important part of people's lives, not just this old bung it into the... Um, microwave. So I think that's unhealthy on all sorts of counts. Okay. Um, what do you think about uh, steamed food? I steam mine a lot. Okay. I steam my potatoes, I steam my veggies, very lightly in the case of vegetables. Um, and I think steamed food is, is super. If, if people can't afford um, an expensive metal steamers, you can get very inexpensive little bamboo steamers from uh, Chinese or Oriental okay. shops. And again, what do you think about tinned food, tinned fruits compared to obviously, you know, fruits in a in a fruit stall or in, in, in a supermarket? I mean, I usually buy my fruit uh, from a street market. Yeah. Um, 
or, or a, a farmer's market, that sort of thing. Um, and I eat it as fresh as possible. And I try to have um, local fruit and veg um, because it's, it's fresher. And also, if it claims to be organic, I know it's been properly monitored. Whereas if it's come from overseas, or even if it says organic, yeah. I don't know that their standards are those of the UK. And things like bread as well. I mean, is there anything you'd prefer or is it... Um, I have wholemeal bread, often things um, with sunflower seeds or yeah. um, pumpkin seeds, those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. I try to also to have some other breads made with rye, for example, because okay. I think we tend to be very wheat-dominated. Um, I'm a potatoes person rather than a bread person, but okay. I do have some bread every yeah. day. With treatments for cancer nowadays, what sort of, what sort of new treatments are out there to where you was almost 14 years ago? Oh, they're much better. Um, Not only the treatments themselves, but the ways of coping with side effects. For example, there's a drug that was only just coming onto the market when I was treated for chemotherapy called Andoncitron, which is amazing at dealing with the nausea side effects from chemotherapy. Um, There are many, many new, more effective chemotherapy treatments um, in the case of breast cancer and prostate cancer, there are quite a lot of hormone therapies that are available. Many of them are, are much more gentle and um, are very helpful. So in terms of conventional medicine, um, there's a lot of progress. There's, in the case of breast cancer, for example, there's much more effort made to conserve the whole breast. Yeah. Um, because the psychological impact of having a breast removed can be devastating for some women. I mean, why is it women get affected in certain places? I mean, is, it, is that to do with uh, the, the, the cells being more prone to, to cancer in those places? Well, I think with breast tissue, it has particular receptors for the same chemicals, for example, as are in milk. So um, I think, you know, if you look at a population that doesn't have dairy, like... China before the 1980s. So I would talk to doctors there who've hardly seen a case of breast cancer in their whole career. Um, So I think it's what we do. um, And I think it's particularly... You see, not only is dairy bad, but what we started to do in the Second World War, we were so worried in this country about starving that people worked out all sorts of ways to increase food productivity. So they worked out how to keep milking cows when they're pregnant. And that is still going on only more so. And what that has done is dramatically increased the amount of estrogen in milk and the amount of male hormones too in milk because the cow's pregnant increasingly so. I mean, this has just gone on and on since 1945, and it's now nine to ten months of the year um, that the animal is, is pregnant and producing milk. Right, well, that, I mean, that would make sense to me, I mean, the oestrogen. So what's the sort of latest research that, that's now linking between cancer and diet? I mean, is there anything that's, that's now more papers that have sort of come out on, on the subject? Yes, as I said, there's this paper by um, Professor Danby in um, the States. I can't remember the journal it's published in, but it's on my website, where he has linked linked acne, breast cancer, and prostate cancer to dairy consumption. Um, There's a very interesting study that's been conducted in the States by Professor Dean Ornish, who's Professor of 
preventative medicine in California. And what he has shown is that if you have people with early prostate cancer and you leave one group just on their normal diet and you take the other group and put them on my sort of diet, though he doesn't say it's my sort of diet, but, you know, one that's high in soya, vegetables, um, fruit, etc. Um, and you give those people um, help with stress management and with exercise, then the prostate cancer um, virtually disappeared in the, in the group that were given the food and exercise. And not only that, the amazing thing that's hit us all is yeah. all the cancer genes were turned off. Amazing. And all the protective genes were turned on. I'm talking about more than 450 cancer genes. Mm, that's, that, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? When you, um, and that's in the, in the US that that trial took place? Yes, yeah. he's, he's yeah. a very respected doctor okay. called Professor Dean Ornish, O-R-N-I-S-H. Again, all that information is on my website. Okay, okay. Well, well, we'll put your website link on our, on our, yeah. on our site as yeah. well. So would you say there's sort of any sort of invested interest groups out there sort of, you know, hampering progress in, in fighting cancer for... Well, if you look, there's a very interesting book produced in 2005 by the Women's Environmental Network and the Unison Trade Union, which said breast cancer and environmental disease. And in it, they said there was a cancer industry with a vested interest in um, in, in the sort of can- in cancer as a as an industry and I must say when I look at some trade journals you know you feel that the model that for example some aspects some parts of pharmaceutical companies want to go for with cancer is similar to that of AIDS where nobody dies but everybody is permanently on medication okay because that makes an enormous amount of money of of course. course yes of course and so um you know, so one, there's the food industry who don't want people to hear my message, and two, there's the cancer industry, um, which doesn't want people to hear my message. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you that, actually. What do you think of uh, research charities like Cancer Research, for example? I mean, Well, I don't know them very well, but when I look at the websites of some of these cancer charities, they are so anodyne. Um, I don't think people can get any real help from them. It's on the one, it, they're what I call two-handed science. On the one hand this, on the other hand this. So the poor member of the public is left with great confusion. There's also confusion in the public because um, quite a lot of scientists will front for somebody, for vested interest. George Monbiot has raised this issue. And, of course, the most upsetting example of that was the discovery that the great Professor Doll, who blew the whistle on tobacco, after his death, letters were found indicating that he'd been in the pay of some pesticide um, and chemical manufacturers. And this was of great concern because, of course, he'd written the big book in 1979-81, What Causes Cancer for the American Government. So, And and many of us were were quite, when you look at that work, um, the finding has been that it was flawed because um, quite a few of, it it was designed so anybody over 60, I think, was left out um, when it was re-examined. So it's quite worrying to find that he'd been in the pay of the... um, of the chemical companies. I've documented this in my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, since, you know, um, 
since two years before he published that report. So, you know, the thing is, you have to be very careful because even though somebody's a scientist, you need to say to them, who is paying you? Who is funding your research? I mean, I'm very lucky because my research is in the field of environmental protection for international mining companies. So I can say these things as a scientist about food, and it's not going to affect my research dollars. Um, But if you're in that field and you're getting money from a vested interest group, it's very hard for you to say, actually, this food makes things worse. I can see that it could be very, very difficult indeed um, to do that. But I mean, uh, I think there's, I think there's bigger people pulling strings sometimes, most definitely. With, with yes, this, I, I do. I mean, there's a whole vested interest, uh, especially in the dairy industry. I mean, you know, you only have to look at some of the um, people in this country who yeah. own dairy industries to see the, yeah. the pressures. So, j- just ending the, the food sort of criteria here. Yeah. What's your views on coffee and tea? Um, I drink masses of green tea um, because that's been shown to be very, very protective against a whole range of cancers, especially prostate cancer, but also um, breast cancer. So I drink masses of green tea. I buy it from oriental shops and just drink it with sometimes with lemon but no, so i have masses of that i don't i've never liked coffee so um i don't really have a view on coffee okay. one way or the other but i wouldn't have decaffeinated coffee because then that might have other chemicals in it and i drink black tea occasionally if there is no green tea but i won't have milk or sugar obviously Jane, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, I hope you can join us sometime in the future. Thank you, Kevin. To find out more about Jane Plant, go to www.themoreshow.co.uk and look up Jane Plant under past guests. So until next time, be safe. Be safe.